Clearly KC, a podcast by the National Keratoconus Foundation, featuring information about life with keratoconus. I am your host, Dr. Melissa Barnett. Let me introduce you to Dr. Suzanne Sherman, an associate professor at the University of South Florida in the Department of Ophthalmology. She specializes in complex and medically necessary contact lens fitting and anterior segment disease. Dr. Sherman completed fellowships of the American Academy of Optometry and the Scleral Lens Society. Today, we are talking about keratoconus in pregnancy. Welcome, Dr. Sherman. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Dr. Barnett and to Mary and the National Keratoconus Foundation. Um, It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. It's great to talk to you again and talk about such an important topic. The cornea, and I think you'll agree with this, the cornea is absolutely fascinating. It's a hormone-responsive tissue that responds to changing levels of female sex hormones. Please share with us what changes occur to the body, and specifically the eye, during pregnancy. Pregnancy and keratoconus for me kind of collided in my profession, but also in that I have a father who's an OBGYN. So I was always very lucky to be able to ask these questions. And what we have to remember is when a woman is pregnant, the hormones in her body are totally different in terms of their levels than they are regularly. And those hormones are changing for purposeful reasons. The key hormones surge during pregnancy. And they're produced by something called the placenta, which is vital in order to grow a healthy baby. Those are hormones that are produced at a level that wouldn't normally be there if you weren't pregnant. We're talking about things like estrogen, progesterone. A good example of that is more estrogen is produced during pregnancy than a woman produces in her entire life. So we're not talking about little shifts in hormones. We're talking about large ones. And when it comes to the body, anyone who's been through pregnancy knows, but if you haven't, you change in dramatic ways all throughout your body during pregnancy. Your heart has to pump more blood, you retain fluid. But when we're talking about the eye, there are lots of changes, small and large, that happen. And they happen to the lids, the conjunctiva, the cornea, your focusing system, the lens that's in your eye, your intraocular pressure, which is your eye pressure, and the back of the eye, the retina, these can all be affected during pregnancy. If we want to specifically look at the cornea, which I agree with Dr. Barnett is is fascinating, recently a deep dive was done by BMC into how hormones affect the cornea throughout a woman's life. And what they found is it's constantly affecting the woman's cornea. But during pregnancy, we see an increase in corneal thickness and volume due to a couple of things. One, retention of fluid. You always hear about women getting swollen hands and feet during pregnancy, right? We retain fluid. But the cornea retains fluid. And the cornea has receptors in it, and those are hormonal receptors, specifically for estrogen and progesterone. And what happens is when those hormones increase, they cause the cornea to decrease in its stiffness. So if you think about it like this, when you have to get ready to give birth, your body in general needs to be more limber, right? Things need to be able to stretch and bend in ways they normally can't. Your body doesn't know to say, let's have our uterus and things stretch and expand, but not the cornea. Everything stretches and expands. 
So your cornea becomes more limber, just like other parts of your body. And the average person who doesn't have keratoconus, not such a big deal. You might notice fluctuations in vision. But in a keratoconic patient, it's thought that those patients are already predisposed to bending and shifting of the cornea. And then during pregnancy, it actually happens on a higher level, which causes increased steepening of the cornea. And the average patient, this goes back to normal about four to six weeks after pregnancy. But in a keratoconic patient, that's not always the case. That actually makes so much sense. And I've never really thought about it that way, that during pregnancy, so many things are changing and the cornea does as well. Wow. How do you actually educate your patients with keratoconus prior to conception? What advice do you give? I put keratoconus in a similar category as a patient who has glaucoma or diabetes or a thyroid condition, any other health condition or disease that is affected during pregnancy. We know the body changes during pregnancy. So if you have a young female of the age range where they are able to conceive a child, at some point, if they have keratoconus, the conversation has to be, we know this condition is progressive throughout your life. Depending on what's going on in clinic, you're running pentacams or corneal topographies on this patient, you're watching for progression. And at some point, you will say to the patient or the patient, if they already know, they might say to you, I'm thinking of having children. Do I need to be concerned about the progression or the changes of my condition while I'm pregnant? Sometimes this is a hard topic, right? It's a sensitive topic because not everyone wants to have children and having children is a not always easy thing. But that patient has to understand that their condition can change. So we often watch these patients very closely in the younger stages of their life anyways, in their 20s, in their higher 20s of having children. If they're progressing, even in a small amount, I think that doctors will be more likely to have the conversation about cross-linking, corneal linking, with the patient. There are case reports in the literature of patients who've had cross-linking before they conceived. And those patients have shown to have smaller changes to their corneal steepening in the end. And when I say in the end, I mean not throughout the pregnancy. I mean, when you get to the six-month point postpartum, one year, the changes that that patient who's had cross-linking has had has been shown to be less. Now, Dr. Barnett, I have to say there are limited studies on this subject, extremely limited. There are case reports and a couple of case series But obviously, we don't really study pregnant patients, and it is very hard to have patients coming in for eye exams once they've given birth, because we all know they have a lot going on. There's life in a newborn, as you know very well right now, right? Yes. So when do you actually recommend corneal cross-linking to females with keratoconus? Do you talk about it early? Do you talk about it in the conversation about getting pregnant? When do you have that discussion? As we talked about, it's kind of a delicate conversation. I have looped it into my general conversation about keratoconus. If a patient is new to my practice or newly diagnosed and they are female and still within the childbearing years, and you can't make any assumptions, I I think you have to go with a large, broad range age-wise. Agree. When I talk to them about this is a progressive condition and it can change as you age and depending on 
a lot of factors, right? We know A to P, we know eye rubbing, pregnancy. I added in there. I think most young women who are of childbearing years are very in tuned to hearing pregnancy. And if I find that I need to give more information, I will. Now, I usually do say at some point when I fit them in lenses or I monitor them, I do tell them if at any time you're thinking about having children or that's something you're interested in, we should continue to monitor you more closely ahead of time to see if you're a candidate to have cross-linking. I think cross-linking, depending on who you ask and what the parameters are to get it, and I'm sure you know this, there are some docs who cross-link right away, even if they don't necessarily have perfect examples of progression. And then there are docs who are very by protocol for progression. I think that's up to the surgeon. But in patients who have keratoconus during childbearing years, I think that our job is to educate them that they need to have that conversation and they need to have it with a surgeon who could do it before, if we can, they get pregnant. That's great advice. So how do you discuss and explain cross-linking with your patients? I explain cross-linking with our patients, first of all, is something that we just never had before. And it's such a, I don't want to say blessing, but it's such a advantage for patients who have keratoconus. Because now, if we catch the condition early enough, we really can give them a quality of life where their dependence on things like transplants and contact lenses is extremely low compared to the generations before them. I explained what the cross-linking is there to do is strengthen that cornea that might be predisposed to bending or bulging and giving it a little extra support to keep the shape firm. I tell them that we know throughout a person's life their cornea does change shape, but the average person is not changing dramatically over this short period where a lot of keratoconic patients change. I tell them that this is a treatment that right now we are not having to repeat commonly, although there are some cases in the literature where they are repeating treatment, and that it just became FDA approved in the U.S. in, I think, 2015, but it has been done in Europe for a very long time with great success. Excellent. Yes, cross-linking is absolutely fascinating and amazing, and I think I cheered uh, once it became FDA approved in this country, and the studies going on right now are actually pretty exciting for the future of cross-linking, too. And coverage is so much better now than it used to be for cross-linking. So if there is any progression, especially for people with keratoconus, it's fantastic to cross-link early and then to prevent progression What other advice do you have to your patients with keratoconus to halt progression? Really quickly before I answer that, I think the other thing that's really important is that there are other technologies out there that can screen for keratoconus and pick it up earlier that not every provider has. We have the old school technology of doing a refraction, but there are machines out there like corneal topography that can help a provider identify keratoconus earlier. So if you're seeing an eye doctor who maybe doesn't have those capabilities and you're struggling with your prescription, I do think it's very important to see someone who does have those capabilities. Two other things I just want to mention. Go ahead. Go ahead. One is there have been cases in the literature of people who did not know they had keratoconus 
and they got pregnant. And then afterwards, their vision changed and their corneas changed. And then they were diagnosed with keratoconus. Now, whether those patients, I don't believe they had uh, a corneal topography done that had the level of sophistication of a Berlin Ambrosio kind of mapping. So who knows? Maybe they had some very, very minor signs that weren't picked up. But the changes that occurred during pregnancy made it so that they were picked up. Now, that's very uncommon, but it has happened. The other thing I did want to point out, as someone who has gone through pregnancy three times and had vision changes during more than one of them, it's not uncommon for the healthy, non-high-risk patient to have vision changes during pregnancy, someone who does not have keratoconus. But usually we expect those to go back to normal, we say four to six weeks. But we have to remember that a lot of women breastfeed, and that keeps your hormones at a different balance. So if you have keratoconus, you get pregnant, and you breastfeed, you may find that your vision does not go back to its baseline, or your corneal findings don't go back to their baseline as quickly as someone who doesn't breastfeed. And that's just something to keep in mind, because your normal state isn't fully back yet because you are still breastfeeding. So you may still go back to where you were before pregnancy, but it might be slightly delayed because you are still going through a lot of hormonal changes. And that's really good. I actually counsel all my patients during pregnancy that there can be vision changes. And that's important to discuss with our patients because of these hormonal changes Not everyone, I don't think, talks about it or discusses it or even brings it up in conversation. I think that's uh, very true. You have a lot of changes going on during pregnancy that are new and can be frightening. And vision, if not the primary sense, it's definitely one of them. And having that change also is extremely scary. So if the patient has heard from their provider in advance that this may happen, when it does occur, they'll know who to go to, they'll know that it's normal and they won't be as uh, scared. Very true. So now I'm going to ask you again, what advice you give to your patients to halt the progression of keratoconus? The obvious ones that we know of, eye rubbing. We tend to, at least in my last practice, we had a checklist of things we asked patients. And we kept adding to that, not with things that were necessarily found in the literature yet, but trends that we had seen. So number one, eye rubbing, obviously use antihistamine eye drops when your eyes irritate you or use over-the-counter artificial tear. Patients who have other conditions with ATP, keep them under control, eczema, things like that. See a doctor who helps you regulate those. Getting yearly or even in patients who might have keratoconus, you go more often than yearly to monitor the progression of that condition. Obviously, corneal cross-linking is something we can do to halt progression. Uh, We had seen and we're watching patients who sleep on one side commonly and tend to sleep with their hand under their pillow on that side. Often it seemed their keratoconus in that eye was more progressed than the other eye. Now, maybe they just happened to be more of an eye rubber on that side, but that's something we had added to the list. And I often ask the patient and then I recommend to them maybe start switching it up a little bit and just see if it helps. So those are the key things that I recommend I recommend other things to help make my patient more functional, but they won't stop the progression of keratoconus. Excellent, excellent tips. I think if there's one thing we can share with everyone, it's to avoid eye rubbing. 
But then the other one is the importance of comprehensive eye examinations for everyone from little kids to adults. So thank you so much for all of your words of wisdom and for joining us on the Clearly Casey podcast today. Please listen to the Clearly Casey podcast on Podbean or your favorite podcast app to subscribe and get future episodes. For now, I'm Dr. Melissa Barnett, and please join us next time on Clearly Casey. Thank you so much.